what I can remember to this day is when he'd look over at me after saying, I've got it, and he'd stabilize the ship, look over at me, and he didn't say anything, but the look on his face said, I thought you said you were a pilot. You're listening to the Rotary Wing Show, a show for helicopter aircrew by helicopter aircrew. Each episode, we travel the world to hear from the people that fly and support helicopters to learn a little bit more about their stories and pick up some tips along the way. If you want to catch up on past shows or see photos from the interviews, head over to rotarywingshow.com. You can also subscribe on iTunes. Just search for Rotary Wing Show and get future episodes direct to your phone. I'm your host, Mick Cullen. Welcome back, folks, to the Rotary Wing Show. It's great to join you again for another week. And something different this time, I'm actually starting the the, uh, the episode off, and I've got um, Doug on the line. So, Doug, how are you? Thanks for being able to join us. I'm doing good, Mick. How are you? Excellent. So, you've listened to the show for a while, and you know, you've been a, a big proponent on uh, Twitter and uh, supporting the show and things like that. So, you know, one, just a, a big thanks for, <laughs> for the support and helping out. But, uh, yeah, do you want to just people who are listening just a, a quick idea of uh, where you're at flying-wise, and then we'll introduce um, Pete, who's going to be the actual interview for today. Absolutely. Well, first, thank you for all the information that you put out. It's fun listening to the podcasts and the interviews and all the good information also, so we appreciate that. Um, I am uh, basically a, a private pilot right now. I'm very low time, maybe 75 hours total. Got my, my certificate here in the States at Western Helicopters, um, Rialto, California. And um, after that, uh, things kind of turned south and, you know, with the economy and everything. And so uh, there was not a lot of uh, training ships. Western had to sell their training ship and it was just, it was hard to find hours. And it, we still haven't had a, a 300 uh, since they did sell that one. So I'm I'm picking hours here and there as much as I can, and I'm actually currently uh, building a rotorway, a jet exec at, at my house. So that's the next project. If I can't find hours, I'm going to build my own helicopter and make some hours. All right, I didn't know that. So yeah, talk us through that one. Have you got a have you got an engineering and mechanical background, and do you sort of does it come in a box and you got to go from there, or how does it work? Um, well, the typical uh, experimental helicopter builder would order the package from Rotorway, and then you get it delivered in crates, uh, like the engine component and transmission and the airframe and different parts. And then, yeah, you build it for, from plans. But I'm not kind of going that route. I found a ship that was in an accident, and I'm kind of scavenging parts off of that. And um, the normal engine is a four-cylinder water-cooled uh, piston engine and there's um sort of an aftermarket following to take a solar t62 turbine engine and um replace that factory power plant with the turbine and go from there so i have the conversion kit for the turbine i'm sourcing out the actual engine now and um, working on putting that together here so that's been a fun project for me yeah absolutely and you know I'm much more computers and mechanical and you know the idea of of putting it together <laughs> helicopter together I guess you get inspections along the way but it's uh yeah it's not something I'm gonna try anytime soon <laughs> you have to be pretty secure in your technical abilities and yes to answer your question I have uh actually I am a music teacher by trade but I do have quite a bit of technical background um racing off-roading and uh fabrication so it, it's a hobby as you know 
Very cool. Well, Doug, when you first emailed me, you, you mentioned there was a couple of folks there at, um, at Western Helicopters that you thought would be uh, great people to you know, get on the show at some stage, and, and one of them was Pete. So can you talk, yeah, tell us a, bit, a little bit about Pete and how you met him and, and uh, I guess a bit of an introduction to what we're about to hear. Absolutely. Uh, Western is a unique place in that they've been going on uh, for such a long time and uh, they have some amazing pilots come through their doors all the time. And one of the reasons is because of the quality of the instruction. It's not a school where you go in and you get a, a CFI that, that just got his uh, certificate, is a young person building hours. This school is taught by hands-on instructors that have tens of thousands of hours. Uh, Bob Spencer is the main instructor, Pete Gillies being the chief pilot. And uh, so Bob was my instructor, but every once in a while I'd get to ride with Pete. And Pete is just such a legendary gentleman. Amazing background. His um, mom was a WASP uh, pilot in World War II. His dad was a flight test engineer for Grumman, among other companies. So he he grew up with all the great American aviation greats, I should say the world aviation greats, sitting at his dinner table having conversations with him, and he didn't know who these people were. So Pete himself is just... uh, Story after story after story, and uh, you get a good example today of uh, maybe a taste of a bit what's to come in terms of that. And yeah, again, you know, thank you for the initiative. Doug went and sat down with Pete and, and recorded some of this, and I think you've got more there. But uh, this is definitely a taste to get things started, and we'll see how we can go with cleaning the, the audio up. There's a couple parts there where Doug asks, a, you know, you ask a question and it's, it's fate in the background, but I think right. the audio will work just fine as it stands. But uh, yeah, it's uh, definitely it's obviously a story that he's told you before, and he's uh, he's retelling it. But well, I'm very you know very jealous that this is exactly what the show exists. It's to be able to capture some of these stories and uh, and share them around. Yeah, exactly. And a student on an everyday level would sit down, and Pete would just smile and find your best qualities, and just and make a story that that fits into your life personally. And I've heard so many of these stories that I I finally did say to him one day, Pete. We need to sit down and record this so we can share it with others because it's just it's just such good stuff. And uh, so I did sit him down in my house one evening and kind of like I said um, nonchalantly, uh, casually, we just sat down and I just started asking some questions. And uh, so it was very successful. And listening to it, it's just it's fun. He's humorous. He's entertaining. I think he's a good guy. And uh, hopefully, like I said, there'll be some more good stories to come. That's brilliant. All right, Doug, do you want to hand over then we'll in, and just give a quick intro to Pete and we'll cut across to Pete's interview. All right. Well, ladies and gentlemen, enjoy the interview of how Pete Gillies first learned to fly a helicopter. Tell me about when your first helicopter experience. <laughs> You've heard this story before. A few times. <laughs> okay. Uh, uh, let me focus on this. All right. <laughs> okay. The second company I worked for there in San Diego, I worked for them for 10 years, were located right on Montgomery Field. Run- Montgomery Field had two runways like this. And I'm going to guess that one of them might have been runway 27, and the other one might have been runway 23 or something like that. I don't know. They weren't crossed, but they were like this. We were located 
at the north end of the uh, 2-3. Forgive me if it's not the right. But the airport, there's, I can go out of the shipping dock on the back end of, end of the plant, and I can, I mean, you could almost, if I had a rock, throw it over the chain link fence, and it lands on the airport property. And a 100 yards beyond that, you can see the runway markings, uh, runway numbers. The tower's right over here, right on the airport, but not being on airport property. Because our back fence line was the airport boundary. At that time, the company had about 400 people working for it, and during the daytime, uh, this was just a one-story building. Uh, it was set up for engineering and production of electronic equipment that was designed to analyze and control sound and vibration. Analyze and control. Did it have anything to do with aircraft or nothing? Oh, it was all, all aircraft and missiles. But if you're a missile engineer and you are, before you even try a launch, you're going to be checking the structure for vibration tolerance and what vibrations are occurring because of the engines and all this stuff. Hugely complicated thing. So we made equipment that if you were an engineer and you wanted to know if your missile structure was going to break up before it ever left the ground, you could use our equipment to very selectively look at the characteristics of the missile frame and find out if it had vulnerable places where vibration would start something moving. You knew from uh, many tests made, not at not by you, but by the rocket engine people, they knew that when the rocket engine that's going to lift the missile, when the rocket engine is firing, it's producing a tremendous amount of vibration as well as thrust. You want to be sure that your frame to which the rocket engine is attached does not have some some part of the structure that is sympathetic to that vibration frequency. Okay. So we made the kind of equipment where you could non-destructively, you could determine exactly what vibration response your airframe had. And I say airframe, I'm speaking about the missile or airplane, same thing. So uh, we were we were busy people, but uh, we were built. All of the stuff that we built had something to do with missile engineering or airplane or helicopter engineering. So that was the business I was in, or I, that's what I was hired to. To uh, uh, you know, I was an employee, R and D bench technician. And as such, uh, I was working closely with the engineering department. And the engineers would sit at their desks and come up with circuits and so forth that needed to be breadboarded. And back then, a breadboard was exactly that. It was a piece of pine that you could easily find in a kitchen where you put a loaf of bread on it and cut the bread, okay, make sandwiches and all that. We had wood, hammers, nails, uh, headless nails, finishing nails. And uh, an engineer would hand me a schematic of something that involved maybe miniature vacuum tubes or transistors and diodes and all this stuff, which was my world back in those days. Say, here, Pete, can you breadboard this for me? 
And so that meant me going to the park department and requisitioning whatever material I needed and a breadboard and nails and hammer, and I would lay out and nail, put nails in a board and then wire up the circuit. And when it's all done, I take it to the engineer or have him come to my bench, and here it is, apply power and check out and see if it works. And one day, uh, it was a Friday, one of my favorite engineers came to me and said, I, uh, I hate to ask you to do this, but would you work tomorrow and uh, breadboard this circuit for me? I really need it first thing Monday morning. Customers coming in, and I want to know if this thing's going to work. I think it'll work, but can you breadboard? Sure. So the next morning, Saturday morning, I came in to, to work. It was a nice Sunday day. Nobody is in the plant. Nobody. I've got a key to the front door. I let myself in. And uh, normally we have 400-some people, par- full parking lot and all this. We had music playing. And the normal noises that 400 people make, certainly 350 of those were assembly line guys and gals, mostly gals, soldering and all this but it's dead quiet, pin drop type quiet. So I uh, go to my bench and I uh, get out my stuff and I'm starting the breadboard and I hear a noise I'd never heard before. It's the snarling noise. It sounds kind of like the like that. And I'm deep inside the plant and I hear this. And three or four months later, I hear it again. It is annoying. It's it's really annoying. I have no idea what it is. I have no idea. It's not a motorcycle. And I'm getting the Doppler uh, change in frequency. Uh, so at some point, I don't know, I must have put up with this for half an hour. And it is bothering me. I'm, I really need to concentrate on what I'm doing. I'm trying to, I'm looking at a circuit I've never seen before. I'm trying to breadboard it. And I, I don't need this distraction. And normally, the noise, the normal noise level in the plant with the music and people, there's a certain noise level. And so you get used to that, and it covers everything else. But here, it's dead quiet, and then this snarl. So I don't remember exactly how long it took me to walk out on the shipping dock on the back of the plant. Uh, and here comes a Hughes. 269B, the forerunner of the C. Uh, the major difference, noise-wise, being that the tail rotor on a 269B was shorter than on a C model. And it had to turn faster to be able to cataract the torque. The engines were basically the same. The problem was that the tips of the rotor blades, tail rotor blades, were breaking the speed of sound. So what I am hearing is uh, shock waves. Well, this really annoyed me, and I uh, I watched it back then. I watched it go around the pattern, and I mean it was almost cover your ears type thing. I thought, what is that? That ought to be illegal. <laughs> so, but I saw the air, the helicopter land, and it landed across the field where I normally fueled up the Beach Baron when I, we had a flight. So it shut down. I went in, I finished the breadboard. It was about midday, and I drove around the field to the FBO, and uh, 
I walked in, and the owner of the FBO was uh, Pappy Keogh, something like K-E-O-U-G-H, Pappy Keogh. He's a legend in San Diego. That was his FBO. And I walked in, and he's normally sees me when I come in to pay for gasoline for the Baron. Hi, Pete, what are you doing here this morning? Where's your airplane? I said, Pappy, I've been over at the at the plant this morning, and uh, the, the helicopter, yeah, right there. That thing was ruining my morning. Do you know how noisy that thing is? And he said, well, uh, not really. Um, we haven't had any complaints. Was it bothering you? And I said, yeah, something in that thing is What's that? A horrible snarl. Really bad. Really bad. He said, well, you're in the sound and vibration business. Why don't you uh, take a ride in it? No, I can't do that. I just want to tell you. No, no, seriously. Flight instructor's in the back room here. He just was out training a student. Why don't you... uh, why don't you go for a ride? Won't cost you a cent. Maybe you had no helicopter experience. Oh, I had none. I couldn't even say helicopter. I mean, I didn't. I, I, I. They were not in my world. Did your parents ever? No, no. Mom and dad, no helicopters, nothing. So you know, I, he's twisting my arm because you know he was saying, "Look, if we're creating a problem, we, we'd like to know about it. Maybe, and you're in the business of sound and vibration, so please." No, take take a ride. So I said, okay, all right, fine. So he calls the flight instructor from the back room. And I said, yeah, and he calls me Mr. Gillies. He says, Mr. Gillies would like to take a ride in the uh, helicopter. It's apparently making a lot of uh, noise that uh, was bothering him. He's worked over in the building over there. And uh, and by the way, he's the pilot, so he'll be watching you closely or something, he said to the flight instructor. <laughs> this instructor, if he was 20 years old, I'd be very surprised. Uh, he was really young. I don't remember his name. I wish I did. This was not a dual instruction flight. This was just for me to ride along, see if I could figure out where this noise came from. That's all. So out we go, and um, uh, he's in the left seat. Again, this is just like a three, it's a 300, except for the tail rotor. And the engine, uh, max RPM, I think was 2,900 instead of 3,200. But the same uh, 360 cubic inches. Okay. So he cranks up the helicopter, and the headphones were straight out of a World War II fighter plane chamois skin uh, headphones with no noise suppression. I mean, it was. I laugh when I think back about what our pilots wore during the war. Whenever you see it, saw headsets being worn and B-17s and all, they, this is what they were. There was no noise suppression. Okay. So I put these things on, and I'm just sitting there, you know, in the right seat, got dual controls, I'm just sitting there watching. And I see him start the engine, and, and then the blades begin to turn. And I remember looking up through the bubble, and I can see the blades starting to turn. I'm looking at all these nuts and bolts and hardware, pitch links and all this stuff. I knew nothing about it, but I got the feeling right away that everything that was going on up there was very important. And I'm used to seeing a couple of fixed wings out there, you know, and I, I remember thinking, this may be the dumbest thing I've ever done in my life. 
you know, but, uh, okay. So he calls the tower and he picks it up. And uh, east of Montgomery Field was a mesa. Today it's covered with thousands of homes and all. Back then there was nothing there but sagebrush, three or four feet high, jackrabbits, just a typical flat mesa in San Diego County. So we go over to the mesa. He's just flying you know, 20 feet above the, uh, above the uh, brush. And I can't remember in detail what he did, but it was basically first he's looking at me to see if I can figure out where the noise is coming from. And the whole thing is nothing but noise. And the tail rotor noise was uh, not distinguishable by itself. You had to be outside and away from the ship to hear this. In ship, I mean, the engine's right there underneath you, and so it was just really noisy. So I don't remember how much time went by. I'm guessing maybe five minutes, ten minutes, and uh, he's looking at me with this, um, should, I, should I do something? You know, uh, am I satisfied with what's going on? And at one point, he, and we're still just, we're not, there's no V&E. We're doing all this over the sagebrush, just flying around. And then he sees a jackrabbit, and he starts chasing this jackrabbit. And the way I chased jackrabbits back in those days was on my horse. And I had a scabbard, a saddle, and if I wasn't riding bareback. And so I, I would, as often as I could, I'd bring home dinner. Mom would cook squirrels and rabbits and stuff like that. So I'm I'm watching as we're you know, 10 or 15 feet over the brush, and he's going back and forth chasing this rabbit. I thought, you know... This could be fun. I, 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 I might, I might like this. This, I, I could get used to this. This is kind of neat. He's doing all the flying, and then he takes me down in a little gully, and I remember looking like this on both sides because I'm thinking airplane in this gully I would not fit. We'd pull off a wing right now. It wasn't tight by my standards today, but back then I was not used to going down in gullies with an airplane craft of any kind <laughs> down the gully come back up and uh then he turns to me and he says you're a pilot right and i said yep oh by the way the the intercom system was almost unusable so it's mostly <laughs> shouting back and forth yep yeah i'm fine i want to fly well i had been watching him and, and there was obviously nothing to this i mean there was no, no, nothing was going on. It was all just, oh, okay. So I said, um, sure. He said, okay, put your hands on the controls, hands and feet. You got it. He took his hands up. Everything was really fine for a second or two, a second or two. And the moment that the uh, helicopter started to make a motion. Hey, I learned to fly in a Piper Cub. I know what the stick does here. So at this moment, that, and we're, we're again 10, 15 feet off the sagebrush, and as the aircraft would start to roll to the right a little bit, I'd put in left cyclic, which was, of course, the proper thing to do, I thought. But 
I would put in too much and hold it for too long, and then I put opposite, and within a, two or three seconds, we're basically out of control. We're going to crash and burn. And then he would say in a loud tone of voice, I've got it. And uh, he'd put his hands on the controls and do absolutely nothing, and the ship was just absolutely perfect, you know. And I can, Doug, I can remember looking at his cyclic in mine to see what what the difference was here. Got to be different. I figured mine was loose, made of rubber or something, you know. And then, and and what I can remember to this day is when he'd look over at me after saying, "I've got it," and he'd stabilize the ship, look over at me, and he didn't say anything, but the look on his face said, "I thought you said you were a pilot," you know. He didn't say it, but the look was uh, this look of, uh, <laughs> what? You're a pilot, right? So he repeatedly gave me a chance. I'm going to try that again. Sure. I knew that, you know, it was just a matter of a couple of tries and I'd have it. Couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. I was so humbled. And by that time... I had not only been flying multi-engine instrument, blah, blah, blah. I'd had Learjet time, I'd citation time. Anything that had wings and a propeller or a jet, I could fly. I mean, it's simple. This stupid helicopter with hardly anything in the panel and the controls, and I could not fly. I, I couldn't do it. It was It was pathetic. I don't know how long we went through this, but I, it seemed like at least 20 minutes. It was probably shorter than that. But finally I said, <laughs> thanks, thanks, no, let's go back to the field. Go back and uh, cool down and shut down, and Pappy Keogh came out to uh, ask me if I had found out where the noise was coming from. I don't remember what I told him other than my basic message as far as the helicopter was concerned. As far as the helicopter was concerned, I said, you can take this and put it where the sun don't shine. Those were my exact words, I said. I was, I was so embarrassed, so humbled. I really, I couldn't believe that I couldn't fly that thing. And he was surprised. He said, "Oh, um, 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 well, um, gee, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. You didn't, uh, you didn't enjoy the flight." And I said, "Hey, Pappy, uh, I have no need for that machine. Thank you, uh, thank you to your instructor. And I don't know. I, the noise, the noise was so bad in the cockpit. I couldn't possibly tell where the snarl was coming from. But it, gee, something on that ship makes a snarl, and." Just remember I told you so. <laughs> we shook hands and left. That was Saturday, and uh, I went home. I walked in the house. My wife, Judy, at the time, and she looked at me with a what happened to you type look on your face, and I described what I'd just been through. I said, you know, I think I may have a problem. I, I really do. Here I thought I could fly anything. I couldn't fly this stupid helicopter. Now I'm wondering if I should be flying anything at all. 
because, you know, maybe I've got some something's wired backwards here. And uh, all this success I seem to have flying airplanes, I should be able to fly. I was just a kid. I, he wasn't doing anything. And when I tried to do nothing, it didn't work. And we're out of control in seconds. Well, she was very sympathetic, but I just agonized about this the rest of Saturday and all day Sunday. For Monday morning, when I went to work, I walked to the front office, walked to the secretary, and I said, I'll be back. I'm going around the field. I'll be back in a couple hours. My position with the company was such that I could do that. We didn't have time clocks and all this stuff. Okay. Drove back around to the FBO because I had decided on Sunday that I probably did have a problem. And I needed to know what it was because maybe I just shouldn't get in any kind of an aircraft at all. So I walked back in, same office, same guy, Pappy, Keo, hi, Pete, what can we do for you? Where's your airplane? Same question you always had. <laughs> I said, I'm here, and I remember taking out my wallet, and back then, believe it or not, the cost for one hour of duo was 50 bucks, 50 bucks, which was a lot of money back in those days. Yeah. I can still remember a 20, a 20, and a 10 on the glass counter. I took out my money before I even told him what I wanted to do. And I said, I want an hour's of flight instruction in a helicopter because I think there's something wrong with me, and I, I, um, I've got to find out. I need, I, need, I need someone to tell me yes or no, you can or can't fly helicopters or whatever. Okay, he said, and uh, he calls the flight instructor, and a different guy comes out, Bob Jones. Bob Jones, about my height, nice smile on his face. Uh, his history was uh, as a SAG, screen actor skilled SAG, sound technician on movies. But when he was home in San Diego... He was a flight instructor for the FBO. I don't know where he learned to fly, but he had been flying and training Army pilots at Fort Rucker for a long time. So the guy was obviously good. But he was very unassuming. Hi. We shook hands, and uh, Pappy Keogh again uses the Mr. Gillies thing, says, yeah, Bob, Mr. Gillies has some questions about flying helicopter and He'd like to um, have an hour's lesson. Uh, he's an airplane pilot, um, but um, he, he uh, had an uh, unsatisfactory experience here a couple of days ago, and he has some doubts about uh, his ability to fly, and he, so uh, would you give him an hour's instruction? So Pappy disappears, and Bob and I are standing at the counter, and he says, so tell me, what you're a pilot? I said, yeah. What are you flying on? Oh, Beach Baron and all that stuff. And he said, well, what happened? Well, why are you here? Well, I, I told him about the kid. And I, and I said, yeah. And I, and I point, I said, and I tried to fly the, and I pointed out the window at the helicopter, and it's there, but it's a different make and model. Over the weekend, the young instructor who flew me in the 269B had been uh, eliminated. And Bob Jones was taking his place, and sitting out here in the same spot was a Brantley B2B. So I said, uh, in the helicopter, and I said, oh, that's not the same ship. 
And he said, no, we made a change over the weekend, and that's a Prantley, and uh, I'm, I'm the flight instructor now. I said, oh, okay. Well, he said, so, so, so tell me what happened. And I described the flight. And I said, when the instructor uh, gave me the controls, he, and he stopped me right there, and he said, he gave you the controls? He emphasized the plural. I said, well, yes, isn't that, isn't that what you do when you offer someone a chance to fly? Don't you let them have the controls? He didn't say a word except, come with me. I can still remember it like it was yesterday. He said, come with me. We walked down the hallway. He stops at his office, gets a second headset. We walk out to the Brantley. And there's no pre-flight. There's no nothing. He just, here's how you open the door, hop in. He gets in the other seat. The same engine that the 300 has, the same thing. But the blades are just above your head. And uh, I'm just in awe watching all this. Centrifugal clutch, starts it up. No, no, no manual clutch, centrifugal clutch. As soon as you get the engine going, the blades start turning. Marry the needles together and uh, fix it up, calls the tower. We go out to a practice area there in the airport. He puts it down, and then he says, okay, put your hand on the cyclic, and let's work with this one control. And you know what happened at that point. Uh, with his patience and his uh, style of teaching, well, it was wonderful. And after one hour, my whole life was changed. It was an absolutely stunning change. When I realized there was nothing wrong with me at all, that I simply had never had lesson number one, that I never should have been given three controls at one time with zero instruction, and I got hooked Suddenly, I thought, this has got to be the most fun you can have with your clothes on, you know? God, I was absolutely hooked. And I started coming over every day for as as weather and uh, circumstances would permit. I mean, all I had to do was drive around the field from work, take an hour's instruction. Doug, back then, flight instruction was so simple. It was about as simple as, uh, here, you want to drive my car? Oh, you never driven one of these? Yeah. You know, steering wheel, four tires, keep it between the lines, it don't hit anything. Okay, you know. Uh, oh, your brakes are a little touchy, Pete, and uh, steering's a little bit different than mine, but I mean, come on, and, uh, vehicle to vehicle. And that was the, the, the way the helicopter uh, world was back then. I mean, I had flown enough stuff. As soon as I figured out about not moving the controls and the little difference in response, it was somewhere. I got hooked. I got completely hooked. And uh, finished, you know, and all you needed back then, I already had a commercial airplane license to get a commercial helicopter add-on 25 hours. Combined dual and solo, 25 hours. So, gee whiz, I really had barely learned how to be a helicopter pilot by the time I took my commercial check ride. It was just so simple back then. Were you doing auto-rotations? Yeah, but you never did touchdowns. Although, Bob, that was, the, that was the other key point. Bob Jones, he loved autos. He loved autos, and he would demonstrate them to me. But he would never have me do a touchdown. But, I mean, you had to do a power recovery. 
PTS style, a straight in. I don't even remember doing a 180. Might have, but uh, I remember a straight in. Uh, where were where was the test fl- uh, the uh, flight check? Brown Field, right down near Mexican border. And who with? Oh, you took all check rides were then done with FAA. There was no designated examiner category. You rode with an FAA person. So, and I had never met the man until he shows up from a check ride. And I had like, you know, 26.2 tenths or something like that. But when he showed up for the check ride, I don't remember the written, if there was one. I don't remember the oral. It was nothing like we go through today. Nothing, nothing, even nothing. Even a helicopter pilot? <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't know. We get in the, well, I think he was. We get in the aircraft, and he says, let's go to Brownfield. And I'm tooling along. Little Brantley's 100 mile, miles an hour, easy. It's the fastest helicopter in San Diego. And down to Brownfield, I do not remember anything except the last maneuver, which was an auto-rotation. And it was uh, to recover somewhere in front of the tower or something. And I did fine, came to a stop and hover. And as I'm watching the uh, in a hover, waiting for him to say what we're going to do now, I didn't realize that was the end of the check ride. And I had passed. I didn't realize that, but I'm waiting for him to say something. And as I'm looking at the panel, the rotor tack goes, Ooh. <laughs> engine and rotor tacks in a 300 or in a Brantley were a flexible shaft. Go back to the main transmission, it's a little shaft, flex shaft, turning, you know, in, in, go back up the instrument panel, turning, making the needles move. Well, something broke. And we're going to hover at Brownfield. Montgomery Field is north about 15 minutes flight. I have just passed the check right. Although he didn't say at that moment, you've passed, but it, that obviously was the end of the check ride. And a rotor tack goes to zero. The engine tack's didn't right there it's where it's supposed to be. So he says to me, points at the instrument, and he says, what are you going to do? I don't think fast on my feet very often, but at that point I thought, okay, I, I've got to come up with something really fast here, and I didn't think about it this long. I just said, well, sir, we're halfway between Catalina and uh, Montgomery Field, and we're going to continue flying to Montgomery Field. Uh, the engine tack is normally married to the rotor tack. I'm saying all this in a hover, and I'm spilling this out. I never, ever, never thought about a thing like this, but it just came out. So I said, we're going to continue flying rather than land in the water here with no floats. He said, good decision. (laughs) Off we went. (laughs) What a great yarn. I hope you really enjoyed that. When Doug sent that one through me, I've been listening to it in the car in between running errands. And I remember just having a a smile on my face during different parts, but just the way that Pete tells the story. And I can so relate to that feeling of, you know, part amazement and and part just incredible frustration, you know, trying to hover and get, you know, the the basic concept of the controls under uh, underway. And you're sitting there and the instructor takes over and again, the machine just sits there rock steady 
uh, and they're talking and not even looking at what they're doing. And then you take over and within a, a couple of seconds, you've got this, you know, bucking Bronco or uh, uh, darn thing back there. And uh, yeah, just that process of, of getting control of it and learning what you're doing. So can definitely relate to what Pete's talking about there. And I think it's just a, a common rite of passage that uh, all the front seaters amongst us uh, all share. Now, I'll come back um, possibly to your own early helicopter experiences shortly. First, though, I do want to give a really big thanks to Doug Williams for capturing this interview. Doug is a really interesting guy, too, in his own right. And amongst the other, you know, the flying training, he's also you know, done musical uh, teaching. As he said, he's building his own machine at the moment. He's also picked up his advanced ground instructor rating, which, by the way, is uh, you know a rating we don't have here in Australia, just as a, a difference between the FAA and, and CASA. He's also been the past president of the Experimental aircraft association chapter in redlands in california and part of that he served some time as a ground instructor for the young eagles uh, group and for their events as an aside the young eagles program i've just checked it out it's getting close to having taken two million kids flying since 1992 which is pretty cool doug also contributes a couple of articles to the airfaxjournal.com uh, website so it's highly likely that you'll get to hear a few more of Pete's stories in upcoming episodes, and that will be thanks to the work on Doug's end. In my travels around the uh, interwebs, I've been chatting with a guy that does some fantastic hand-drawn graphics of aircraft. Mark Vienendahl is an industrial designer here in Australia, but his side passion is aviation drawing. So you know, on his lunch break or uh, when he wants to unwind, he, uh, instead of designing coffee machines and things like that, he uh, puts a pen to paper and, and draws aircraft and, and helicopters and uh, all sorts of uh, different aviation uh, influences. And I'll, I'll put a couple of samples of his images up on the uh, the website. They're just really, really fantastic. And if you are on Instagram, I'll link to Mark's Instagram account, where he's currently got 11,000 people who follow his daily drawings. And I've engaged Mark to, to work on another project, but he's also... Oh, very kindly often to do a drawing for a listener of the show. So here's what I thought we would do. Given that Pete's story today was all about his first helicopter experience, what I want to do is, when you get a chance, is head over to the website at rotarywingshow.com and find this episode, episode 39, and in the comments, leave a, a short note or a story about your first helicopter experience. What I'll do is I'll leave this open for... Uh, two weeks from this date and this episode goes to the air and I'll pick a comment from the post at random with the help of random.org and the winner when the person we pick at random will get a have a chance to have a custom sketch of marks created just for you and mailed to you as a, a prize so you'll be able to email us in a photo of your first helicopter you flew or anything other aircraft that you want and Mark will make up a, a really spectacular beautiful looking hand-drawn uh, drawing will send over to you. So this is something that you could, you know, really quite easily frame and put in front of place on your desk or at home. So track down this episode on the website at rotarywingshow.com and leave a, a comment about your first helicopter experience on this episode. And I'll announce that winner in an upcoming show. This episode has been sponsored by trainmorepilots.com where you can get online marketing support ideas for your flight school or aviation company. That's trainmorepilots.com. Don't forget that on the show website, you can also download a list of the top 10 
Helicopter Books, as voted by show listeners. If you're on Facebook or Twitter, come and say hello. On both platforms, a search for Rotary Wing Show will turn us up in the search results. And drop us a message there and you know share what you're up to. You might remember in a, a few past episodes, I've mentioned that I've instructed on a helicopter landing officer course for asset aviation. Matt, the CEO there, has just let me know that I'm now able to offer a new diploma in leadership and management. The whole idea here is that they can uh, basically apply RPL or recognition of prior learning from your current role as air crew or an aviation engineer or aviation operations staff member towards the deployment requirements. And in many cases, you actually be able to meet all the requirements outright and be able to be awarded the diploma with nil additional study required. So if that's something you're interested in, you can investigate that further at assetaviation.com. That's it for this episode. It's been a lot of fun again. I'm uh, looking forward to joining you in the next one. I'm Mick Cullen, and signing off for this week, fly safe. <laughs>